Okay, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are sovereign over the world, even though there are days, there are events, there are things that happen that make us find that hard to believe. We thank you that even over this tragedy in uh, the subcontinent, you would be at work and use this for your glory somehow. We don't understand how. We don't have anything like the big picture, but we know that you do. We pray that the gifts that are being received here and uh, at All Souls today will be used for your glory. And we pray for us as we study John today. Please thrill us, challenge us, grow us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Neil and Carol Armstrong uh, were visiting some good friends, the Solokovs, at the home of the Solokovs' daughter, Kathy, and her husband, Chris, who is a PGA golf tour, uh, professional. And the youngest of the three Perry children, uh, five-year-old Emily, was a very lively girl, and Neil and Emily hit it off immediately, got on very well, and uh, um, Emily soon took Neil Armstrong by the hand uh, uh, on a little expedition through the house. And she said, I want to show you a secret, but you mustn't tell anyone. Uh, this is a secret that nobody knows about, but I'm going to tell you. So they went up into the attic, and Emily said, look over the mattress and look down there. And there it was. There was a great, big, dead bug. Don't tell anyone, she whispered. And then the little girl led him into her bedroom. This is my clock. This is my lamp. This is my mirror. And these are some of my books. This book is on Winnie the Pooh. Uh, this one is on Sleeping Beauty, and this is Cinderella. Oh, and here's a book about Neil Armstrong. You know, he was the first man on the moon. <laughs> then she stopped, hesitated for a moment, looked at the nice older man, who was a bit like Grandpa, who'd come to visit her house and said, hang on a minute, your name's Neil Armstrong, isn't it? And it was, and he is the man who walked on the moon, going to see her bug in the attic. Now, it's a nice thing to read about your hero in books. It's quite another to meet him face to face. And at first time, it doesn't quite seem quite believable. In my presence, face to face, uh, if you hang around all souls uh, for any length of time during the week, you sit on the steps, maybe some you know, people have their sandwiches on the step for lunch. Uh, and if you sit there for a while, you'll see a lot of celebrities walking around, presumably heading off into the BBC. And so if you sit there for a couple of hours, they're bound to be famous faces that you recognize. But away from the sort of dazzling spotlights and the makeup artists, they seem bland, down to earth, and just like everybody else, which of course they are. Well, that's a bit like when the Christ walked the earth, getting his feet muddy in the River Jordan. There were books about him, preparing the way for him, growing the sense of anticipation about him, and these were compiled and venerated and honored as the scriptures of God. And then there were people who went around telling everybody to get ready for him because here's a big name, he's on his way. But when he eventually did appear, he wasn't exactly what they expected. He seemed rather down to earth, a bit bland perhaps, just like everybody else, which of course he was, which of course... He wasn't. What on earth is going on? 
Well, our first heading this morning is the signposts. God is at work. If we had to summarize the differences between the four Gospels, we might put it a bit like this. It's all a question of starting points. Now, here's a big word, Christology. It's a word that theologians use a lot, and it literally means the study of the Christ. So it's basically, uh, Christology is a study of the theology of who the Christ is, what he is, what he's done, uh, and so on. All right? So it's actually quite a major area of Christian theology, because, of course, uh, the key unique point of the gospel is the Christ. And we are Christians. So Christology is fairly important. But if you had to summarize the, uh, the, the gospels, you could do it into two different groups. John's gospel on one side, and the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes called the synoptics, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C-S, the synoptics, because it comes from the Greek, it means they see with one eye. In other words, they're seeing things with one eye, they've got a lot in common, and John has a very different eye. So you have John and the synoptics. And if you had to summarize the synoptics way of doing it, uh, they have a, a Christology from below. What do I mean by that? A Christology from below. Well, they basically do uh, follow the sort of logic and the, the experience, if you like, of the way many people come to faith. They start, their starting point is with Jesus' humanity. He was an ordinary man, and he was. He was a human being with flesh and blood, skin and bones. He wandered around. He did lots of the normal things that you and I do, perfectly normal. There were many things with, whom, uh, with Jesus that we would have masses in common. And people started being attracted to him, but, you know, at one level, no differently from the way many people are sort of magnetic. You know, they say President Obama is very magnetic. He can walk into a room and suddenly he is the center of attention. He doesn't have to do anything. And that was before he became president. There are people who are naturally magnetic. And so people drew, were drawn to Jesus. But as they grew to know him and saw him at work, gradually their understanding of who he was got ratcheted up. They suddenly think, hang on, there's more to this guy than meets the eye. And when you start seeing the things he does, you think, hang on, who is this that the wind and seas obey him? Who is this? And it builds up to suddenly, after the miracles, you think, hang on, he's God incarnate. So do you see that as a Christology from below? And that's how Mark, Matthew, and Luke work. They start at the bottom and they work up. And that's certainly how I became a Christian when I was 18. I started with the fact that he was a historical figure, and it sort of ratcheted up as I learned more of who he is. But John takes the exact opposite view. He starts with a Christology from above. He starts at the premise that, that God is at work in this world. He starts with the Christ, who is the Word, who was, was God and was with God. He starts at the top. And comes with all these signs pointing to who he is and what he's doing. And then the more one experiences of him as you go through John's gospel, the more you can relate to him as a human being. You see that he really is one of us, but you're starting at the other end, you see? And that's one of the key ways in which John is different from the others. And I think that's sometimes why people struggle a bit. They hang on, this is his. John's not starting where I'm starting. But once you see what he's doing, you just see that this is just another way of doing it. You think, okay, let's, let's get into the mindset of this. And I guess for many people who have been Christians for a while, this is quite helpful because that's where we're studying from. Yes, 
uh, we see him as God. Well, that's why I think in chapter 1, with this Christology from above, you have you chapter 1, have a look at it, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Okay, we've got the Christ. We believe that there is a Christ. We believe that God is at work. Let's find out who this Christ is. They bring him to Jesus. Do you see? John is answering the question, who is the Christ, not who is Jesus. So they bring him to Jesus. And some people worry about that and they think, hang on, wasn't Mark's gospel the hinge point of Mark's gospel, the big breakthrough in Mark 8, when suddenly Peter says, you're the Christ. Why is this happening right at the beginning? Isn't there a bit of a contradiction there? Well, we will deal with that in the Can We Trust John seminar uh, tomorrow evening. So there's a little plug, so I don't feel lonely. So it's clear from chapter 1, as John unfolds the story and spirals around the main points, we get the bigger picture, clearer and clearer. And you remember, back in the bookend, we looked at yesterday, the, 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 the spiral at the end that, God, that John speaks of signs. All right? There's our spiral. He spoke of signs pointing to the fact that the Christ is Jesus. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels describes them as uh, uh, performing wonders and powerful acts. Uh, but John uses a very specific word. He calls them signs. He's the only one who does. And we should think of them as signposts. And what do you do with a signpost? You don't sit at the foot. You go to where it points if you're on your journey there. Okay? You don't sit down and admire the artistry and the, the clarity or the use of particular fonts used on the signpost, unless you're a graphic designer, of course, and you're a bit of a geek. Uh, that would be really dumb. No, you go where the signs post. I mean, the sign, the, the sign points. That, yeah, okay, retribution, I know. <laughs> that was a very quick prayer, Alex. <laughs> and all, all the signs point relentlessly and consistently in one direction. They're telling us where to find the Christ in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, which seems very unlikely. And Nathaniel, look in verse 46 of chapter 1, he can't believe it. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? You've got to be joking. And Philip is very wise, do you see? He simply says, well, come and see for yourself. And that's what we're going to do today. Why don't we just come and see for ourselves? Where do these signs point? And I want to get an overview of how John helps us to see what he's seen. Uh, commentator David Wenham puts it like this. Chapter after chapter in this gospel, story after story, may be seen as trying to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that there is life in him. Every chapter is helping us to do that. So the first point is signs of divine activity. Each of these signs points to the one performing them. Now, I've listed them on the sheets. You've got them there listed out. And it's an interesting list. And, and actually, when you look at it, it's pretty small, if you think about it, compared to Mark's gospel, who's, you know, a miracle a minute, pretty much, certainly in the first half. 
And uh, notice, after chapter 11, there aren't any at all. There are no signs after that, except perhaps uh, unless you include the resurrection, although John never actually explicitly calls that a sign. It's pretty clear that it is a sign, the greatest sign. But after chapter 11, you don't have any. So what's going on? Well, and the first one is one that commentators think is very odd. There's water into the wine at a wedding. I mean, you don't have that in any other account. And that's always struck people as rather odd because it's very private, very sort of parochial. It almost seems selfish. It's just, it's just to make a private party go with a swing. What is Jesus doing with that? Why bother? It's just a matter of saving the host's embarrassment. Well, it's highly likely that it was a family wedding. It was one of Jesus' extended family. That's why Mary comes to him all troubled, probably. Maybe it was a cousin and maybe they were the, uh, the older cousins. Who knows? Presumably, there was some family responsibility for making the party go with a swing. But even so, it's very odd to make that your first sign when, as John says, there are many other signs he could have chosen. You know, he says there are plenty of signs. In fact, he says it would fill all the books in the world. So why start with this sort of private wedding one? Very odd. Well, I think it helps to see uh, these signs, including the wine miracle, as Israel miracles. More specifically, as signs of the God of the Old Covenant at work again. And each one, in its different way, echoes what Yahweh, the God of Israel, does in the Old Testament. Now, I'm sure you're aware that the four great sort of classic building blocks of um, Biblical theology are creation, fall, redemption or rescue, and new creation. Well, I think it's interesting if you take these signs, I think you can see them in those sort of terms. Think of the creation miracles. What happened in Genesis 1? The whole universe, the cosmos, was created out of nothing. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin expression that theologians like to use. Out of nothing, from nothing to something. Only God can do that. Well, take Jesus' signs. Wine, where there was none. Food for 5,000, where there'd only been a few scraps. What's more, the signs show a clear mastery of the created order. A mastery that could only come from being its creator, like walking on water. Who else can do that? And then there's uh, the signs that reflect the reversal of the fall, or redemption, or rescue. And several of the signs do that. They echo the great saving acts of God uh, for Israel. So it's no accident that John reminds us very clearly that the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water happened during the Passover. He's very explicit in chapter 6. He says that several times, just so that you get the point. This happened during the Passover. And what's the Passover? The great festival of remembrance of God's rescue of the people from Egypt through the death in every home, with the Passover lamb. They deliberately echo these signs that, uh, uh, that Jesus does, the 5,000 and the walking on water. They echo Yahweh's mastery of the Red Sea at the Exodus and the providing of manna in the desert, Exodus 13 and Exodus 16. And it's fascinating, isn't it? In chapter 6, if you look at it in your own time, Chapter 6, after he's fed the 5,000, how do the people react? Well, they want to seize him to make him their king. Because he's obviously sent by God. And who was uh, the greatest leader of Israel? Wasn't a king as such, but he was certainly a prophet at this time, and that was Moses. Moses, the Exodus leader. Is this God at work again? 
Is he going to boot out the Romans and rescue us from our slavery in Egypt again? But the signs point wider too. They point to God's determination to overcome the tragedy of the fall, a fall that brought in sickness and suffering and sin and death. Hence, the healings and the raising of Lazarus. Which leads to the third area. New creation miracles. You see, it's not just full reversal that God is involved in. The signs also point forward to the day when the new age will come in its fullness. So if you study Jesus' teaching to Mary, sometime have a look at chapter 11. We haven't got time for it in all. But have a look at chapter 11. It's fascinating, this conversation between Mary and Martha and uh, Jesus about Lazarus being raised. And you'll see how they have a future perspective on the resurrection. Yes, one day we'll all be raised. And Jesus agrees with that. But he's saying, look, this is, this is what I'm doing now. I'm bringing about the means for that resurrection. But I think this is also where the wedding wine comes in. Because didn't Isaiah speak of the coming kingdom as a feast? In Isaiah 55, he spoke of a feast to which we could come without money to buy wine, to enjoy the richest affair, to seek the Lord while he may be found. To seek the Lord while he may be found. Well, he can be found at this wedding, providing free wine. It's a small point, but it's a significant one nonetheless. Jesus is saying the same thing. This is a sign. Seek the Lord while he may be found. The wedding wine, the new wedding feast, is available from me. What's more, Isaiah also speaks of the lame leaping for joy, the blind seeing, the mute shouting in the new kingdom. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus does too. So do you see, each sign points to both who the Christ is and to what he's doing. He's Jesus who has come to fulfill God's purposes in a fallen world. The Yahweh of Israel is back. And there's another angle on this. Just as the Logos was compared with Moses in the prologue, we saw that briefly at the end yesterday, so we see how the signs point to the Christ's foundation being uh, having foundation in Old Covenant Judaism, but also being superior to Old Covenant Judaism. So the signs surpass Judaism. We're told at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, just have a look at that, Okay, here we are at the Passover feast. We're told again. In fact, there are three different Passover feasts in John's Gospel, three consecutive years. It's one of the ways we can tell how long his ministry was. 2.23, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Well, there's our spiral again. They saw the signs and believed in his name. Very early on, but this is where this is heading. And that's why Nicodemus could say in chapter 3, and we'll look at Nicodemus tomorrow, but that's why Nicodemus could say, well, no one could do the signs you're doing unless he was sent from God. So we've only had one sign in chapter 2, but we know that he's been doing plenty of others, and they all have the same impact. And one of the things we'll see is that being a Pharisee who tried to obey the law was never going to be enough for Nicodemus. We'll see that tomorrow. It was never going to be enough. And so after the wedding feast sign, we see in John 2 and John 3, a Jewish leader still needs to be reborn. 
the Jewish law is not going to be enough. He still needs to be reborn. And then when we come uh, to uh, the Passover, and I mentioned it comes three times, well, the great Passover in the Old Testament is just a foreshadowing. It was a great moment. It's just a foreshadowing of what is to come. The one foreshadowed is now present, bringing the true manna, the true bread. And then there's the Passover at the end of his life. He is the true Passover sacrifice on the cross. Behold the Lamb, as the Baptist said. And there are a couple more evidences that Jesus' signs point to him surpassing Judaism. Uh, At the wedding, we're told that the jars used for the water were used for purification. And it's not hard to see uh, that as significant for Jesus saying, what I'm going to provide is even better than the water you use for purification. I'm going to in turn the water that purifies you in Jewish religion into a wonderful wine that is a free gift for the heavenly feast. And then we're told in chapter 7, with the healing of the blind man, uh, that it was at the, uh, the, feeding, uh, the, the feast of the tabernacles. And the feast of the tabernacles brought ritual cleansing and it was also a great celebration with torches. And it's fascinating that in chapter 7 and chapter 8, Jesus claims to be the one who brings drink for the thirsty and light for the world. It's no accident that both of them happen in tabernacles. So what's going on? Well, thirdly, they're signs of divine glory. We thought a little bit about God's glory yesterday. Oh, hang on. Um, and you remember from the prologue that John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. What did he mean by that? Well, look in chapter 2 how John concludes the water into wine sign. Verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Do you see? So this sign revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. That's why John can say in chapter 1, we've seen his glory. Miracles are evidence. They are uh, the experience of God's glory. Indeed, the works of God should lead always to a true response of faith in the one who has been at work. And again, there's our spiral. Signs pointing to the Christ so that you believe and thereby have life. Do you see? We come round and round. Trusting in the one to whom the sign points is what matters. But, of course, not everybody does. Some miss the point after the feeding of the 5,000. Some just want food and they want to make him king. I can understand that, but that's not the right response. They're to trust him and the way he is king, not the way they'd like him to be king. And others deliberately rebel. Chapter 13, uh, those uh, Pharisees uh, and uh, teachers and uh, chief priests and so on, They reject him, they deliberately reject him, and they fulfill what Isaiah predicted. We're going to think more about that on Tuesday and the opposition that they face, that Jesus faced. But many people just don't see the signs. I suppose 
without wanting to be irreverent, I think it's a bit like the school reports you read of the great and good, you know, by teachers who didn't really see what uh, the potential in their, their charges was. So I don't know whether you come across Alan Corron. He was a great sort of comic writer. Um, he, uh, he had this rather wonderful report from his physics teacher uh, from his school in the 50s. Corrin's grasp of elementary dynamics is truly astonishing. Had he lived in, an, lived in an earlier eon, I have little doubt but that the wheel would now be square and the principle of the lever just one more of man's impossible dreams. Uh, this is Jilly Cooper, the novelist. Jilly has set herself an extremely low standard which she has failed to maintain. Poor thing. But uh, this is uh, the great Harry Enfield. He had quite a few corkers. At the age of six, this is what one teacher said, very talkative. Unfortunately, what he has to say is not always relevant. And then aged 11, rarely starved for an opinion on any topic. In cricket, he doesn't really hit the ball hard enough but he calls his partners to run with such conviction that one would believe that the ball was speeding away. <laughs> his conversation keeps his side amused and his efforts to avoid having to field are ingenious. <laughs> and then this is my favorite. This is from his rugby coach. Sometimes I wonder whether he is just a spectator who has strayed. That's quite a useful one for your armory. A spectator who has strayed. I think that was definitely the story of my life in sport. Um, as some of you watching the, it's a knockout yesterday will have testified. But anyway. But God has a track record of explaining what he's doing whenever he acts. So that even if sometimes people fail to see the potential in this person they've met, fail to see who he is and what he's going to do, actually... They shouldn't really fail because God has planned, he's anticipated, he's predicted, he acts and then explains his actions. He's been doing that for years, he's been doing that since the beginning. So think back to the days of Noah. He told Noah what was going to happen, he told them why it was happening, what was going on, he told them what had happened to them afterwards so that they knew. It happened with the Exodus, it happens with the Christ. He tells them what's going to happen, he's speaking to them while it's happening and he reminds them after it's happened to, um, uh, with uh, the, the, the details of what it all means. In a sense, the Bible is doing that all the way through. That's why we have the Bible. And it's uh, very clear that when the Christ appears, there's been preparation for him and signs to point to his arrival. And this is what the sign means. The signified is, means that God is here. God is here. Think of the name of Israel's God. Now, in our house, the phone rings a lot uh, for all kinds of reasons. People uh, ringing from church for whatever reason or whatever. But and it's not just telemarketers and people who wanted to put the phone down immediately on. Um, I'm not talking about people from the church when I met them. Right? Um, most of the time. Uh, but uh, you know, people needing help, advice, or they want me to do something or whatever. And occasionally, I don't recognize the voice, so a common request is, may I know who's calling? Well, remember Exodus 3 and then the burning bush or 
because it should be should be called the non-burning bush because of course it only looked as though it was burning it didn't actually burn the non-burning bush Moses was being sent by God to lead the people of Israel and he asked God may I know who's calling and God says of course very sensible and do you remember God's answer God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Or as it is in uh, Hebrew, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh or Jehovah. Hugely significant moment. Life-changing moment. This is the covenant-making, promise-keeping God. And in Hebrew, names mean something. God's name tells us about his nature. I am who I am can also be translated, I will be who I will be. That means what I am today will be the same as what I am tomorrow. So when I say something today, by Thursday, it'll still be true. Do you see, God's very name implies his faithfulness and his consistency, his trustworthiness. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. There's a deliberate echo in Hebrews, isn't there? Jesus the Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it's no accident that Jesus makes all kinds of claims using very strange Greek language. He says, ego eimi. Literally, that means I, I am. In Greek, like uh, some languages, uh, the, 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 the verb contains the, the, um, the pronoun as well. So, Amy, just by itself, means I am. And you only add a pronoun if you want to emphasize something or you're saying something. So, ego, I, Amy, I am. Which is a bit odd. It's a bit clunky. It sounds as odd as it does in English. I, I am. What's he saying? Well, several of the I am sayings link in with the signs. And I put them together on the table so that you can see. So with the, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, I, I am the bread of life. When the man is born blind, uh, just before... And during the, uh, the uh, healing, um, Jesus says, I, I am the light of the world. For this man, literally, things have been dark until he met the light of the world. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's I, Yahweh, the light of the world. You come across people who say, Jesus never said, I'm God. <laughs> Ha! The whole edifice falls, of course, when we're talking to friends. Yeah, show me, where, where did Jesus say he's God? Nowhere. Big deal. I, I am the light of the world. I, I am the bread of life. I, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, of course, because I am Yahweh. It's an absolutely staggering thing to claim. And immediately after the I am the way saying, verse 7 of chapter 14, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Have you seen the father? No. 
wrong. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's why in the prologue it says, basically, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, the one who is at his Father's side. No one has seen God except the one who makes the invisible visible. If you've seen me, you've seen him. It's an extraordinary thing to say. But that fits again with, with the problem of John 1.1, 1, 1, isn't it? He was God and was, was with God. He is God and yet he's somehow distinct from God. Do you see, these pieces of the puzzle are all there, but it's very hard to try and work out logically how on earth they could fit. And of course, because of who he is, we come back to the spiral. The signs point to Jesus being the Christ. And because of that, we put our belief in him, our trust in him, and have life. But there's one passage that I think is absolutely staggering. It blows me away every time. It's the one that Nikki read. Turn to it, would you? Chapter 8. The presence of Israel's God. This is the one I am saying that gets overlooked. But it's the most spectacular of them all. It's actually quite a tricky moment for Jesus. I don't know whether you picked that up. He's had a number of confrontations with the Pharisees. And uh, here, basically, things are, are beginning to hot up. Let's take it from uh, verse 31, just before uh, our reading. In, uh, in 31... we see that basically uh, they're coming to him and uh, he's saying that to the Jews who have believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's amazing how self-focused, self-centered Jesus' teaching is, especially in John's gospel. He's the most sort of egocentric of all four gospels, I think, in terms of Jesus' teaching. He's always talking about his ego, his I, 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 come to me. And of course, <laughs> they think that's ridiculous. Look at verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants and haven't been slain, uh, have never been slaves of anyone. It's not strictly true. They've forgotten the last three or four hundred years of Israel's history, but that's by the by. How can you say that we shall be free? I mean, they, they can't understand why they need liberation at all. Well, Jesus is devastating. Verse 34. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Uh -huh. Where did that sin stuff come from? It's very provocative. A slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever. Slave's just an employee, but a son is family. And basically he's saying, yes, you're descendants. You may be descendants of Abraham, but you're still slaves, not sons. And what's the proof? Well, verse 37, I know you are Abraham's descendants, 
Yet you are ready to kill me because you've no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father. Hang on. Do you see what's going on? So basically, he's saying, look, I'm telling you what I'm seeing. I'm just bearing witness. I'm not making any of this up. I have been in the Father's presence. I'm telling you what I've seen, what I've witnessed, and you're trying to kill me, which means we can't have the same father, can we? If you had the same father as me, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. You'd be listening. You'd be obeying. Do you see the point? So that's the diagnostic tool. What you do with Jesus shows whose father you have. He's saying, you're still sins. So he's saying, look, yeah, 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 yeah. You're descended from Abraham, but that's not the point. That's not going to save you. No. What matters is not your birth, but how you treat me. There it is again. Me, 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 me. But of course, that is a red rag to a bull. Look at verse 41. <laughs> verse 39. First, we, we are, Abraham is our father. Verse 41. We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. But Jesus goes on. They're descendants, but still slaves, not sons. Well, he goes on, yes, they're sons, but they're sons of the devil. Jesus has come, sent from the Father. If you don't follow and accept me, that can mean only one thing. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. You see, if you are a son, you want to do what your father wants you to do. You know, a dutiful son follows in the family footsteps, follows in, you know, goes into the family business and all that. Well, if you're a son of the father, you follow into the father's business. So these clients clearly aren't of the same father. They have the devil as their father. It's very shocking. Very provocative indeed. Has anyone spoken to you quite like that? And then they accuse him in verse 48 of being demon-possessed. You know, talk about the pot calling the kettle black. But then is Jesus' most staggering claim of all. So they are descendants, but they're still slaves, not sons. They are sons, not of the father, but of the devil. But thirdly, Jesus is not Abraham's contemporary, but he's even older. He has unique rights to be God's witness, as he says in verse 55. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Me, 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 me. He saw it and he was glad. There he is sitting up there in heaven looking down on this and he's chuffed to bits to see me here. The Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. I mean, come on. It's insane. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Before Abraham was born, I, I am. I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. Jesus the Christ is the same yesterday and today 
and forever. Jesus is Yahweh on earth. Israel was Yahweh's. Abraham was Yahweh's. This is all his. And so to reject Jesus is actually to reject the purpose of Israel and to reject the promises to Abraham. If this is true, this is the most explosive statement in human history. There has never been anything like this and there never will be again. But if it is false, it is the grossest blasphemy of all time, deserving of death. No wonder they picked up stones. Because they saw. They saw the implications. Now, just in the last few minutes, I want to try and bring all of this together so we can begin to see a bit, and I'm not going to even scratch the surface, but to see all the different pieces of the the, the sort of Godhead jigsaw puzzle, if you like, and see how the early church put some of these pieces together to formulate what we now call the doctrine of the Trinity. Because as I said yesterday, the word Trinity is not a biblical word. The doctrine of the Trinity as articulated is not a biblical doctrine. But that does not mean to say it is unbiblical. What it means is that this is the best way people have come up with over the centuries to try and hold all these different things together. And what is the significance of it all? Well, God is far greater than you can imagine. Now, I want to tell you that the Trinity is not intimidating. The Trinity is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful doctrine and truth. It is not to be intimidated by. Um, It is our lifeblood. It is our foundation. Without the Trinity, actually, none of the gospel would make sense. Everything would fall flat on its face, and so would we. I want to say that um, the Trinity is as easy as riding a bike. Here's a bike. It's as easy as that. Okay, that's a bike for those of you at the back. How do you ride a bike? I hope you can all ride bikes. Riding a bike, let me tell you, is easy. What you do is this. Let me just explain. It's simple physics. I don't really understand physics, but I know how to ride a bike, so I'll I'll try and put it in non-technical language. You put one foot on one side, the pedal thing, the sticky out bit. You put your foot down on that, and it's amazing, because when you do that, the other one comes pinging up. And you know what? You've got another leg. So you can put your foot on that pedal as well. And when you do that, it goes down, and the other one comes up. And it's amazing, because then you just put your foot down on that one. And it's amazing. You can, you can do one after the other. It's actually quite clever. And when you do that, you actually start going forward, unless you're on one of those ghastly torture instruments you find in a gym that's stuck to the floor. <laughs> but... Um, you press down on one, and, and the other one comes up, and you press down, and you, and you go forward. Now, as soon as you stop doing that, you'll fall off. All right, that's the slightly dangerous bit. So when you go and try this at home, uh, you'll know that when you stop, you've just got to do something about that. Okay, well, the Trinity's a bit like that. Basically, you take things that seem absurdly contradictory and you hold them together in tension, not irrationally, not because you arbitrarily want to say, right, I'm going to hold these two completely opposite things together, but you say, 
Well, both of these have been revealed, and therefore I'm going to hold to both being true, and I'm going to work out why I need both to be true, and I'm going to hold to them with all my might, and I'm going to press down on one, and as soon as I press down on one, that there is one God, for instance, I find that pretty quickly the other pedal comes up and reminds me, but in three persons. But if I press down too much on that, I might start thinking there are three gods, and there are not. So I press down on that, and the other one comes up, and I realize that there is one God. One God, three persons. And we realize that we need both sides of this to be true. And both sides are true. It's exactly the same with Jesus Christ himself. He is fully man and fully God. We need him to be both, as we'll see in a second. So we press down on his humanity. And we realize, yes, he was just like us, except he wasn't just like us. He was so much more. He was God amongst us. He was Yahweh. I, I am. And we press down on that. And we might, suddenly might think that actually he's got nothing in common with us. But no, he slept. He talked. He, he was just like us. Fully man, fully God. One God, three persons. If you stop peddling, you fall off. And you get into doctrinal trouble. A lot of heresy derives from people who stop peddling. Well, let's think about this. Uh, Philip Yancey quotes G.K. Chesterton on this. He says, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both, and at keeping them both furious. In other words, intensely hold on to the wonder of both. And as Chesterton said, most heresies come from espousing one opposite at the expense of the other. It's not yin and yang. It's not 50-50. It's 100-100. 100% God, 100% man, 100% one God, 100% three persons. Don't get mathematical about it. Don't get physical about it. One of the problems, I think, is that we only think in terms of time and space. So, for instance, you're sitting on your chair. It is impossible for anybody else to be occupying the same space at the same time. It might be at a different time, or it might be a different space. But you can't have same space and same time, see? So we think physically, we think, one God, three persons, that's impossible. No. You're thinking physically, you're thinking in time and space. But God created time and space. Uh, let me just give you one example of where it is possible to have three in one. It's not a perfect illustration. It's not the sort of three-leaf clover thing. I think all illustrations of the Trinity are doomed, all of them. Every single one is a heresy um, lurking in the wings. But this is quite interesting. You take a musical chord, three notes. If you have a musical ear, you can hear each of the three notes, but it comes to you as one sound. Each of them has their own dynamic. Each of them has their own frequency. Each of them has their own life but they come to you as one. Now, the problem with that is that it makes, it downplays the threeness of God. The three-leaf clover or the three types of uh, water, they all downplay um, the oneness because you can't have, uh, or the, 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 the water ice thing, that downplays the oneness. The three-leaf clover downplays the threeness. Each of them will go wrong somewhere. So all the illustrations are doomed, but you've just got to try and think slightly outside the box here. Okay, well, let's try and do that very quickly in the last uh, five, ten minutes. John, you see, is adamant. He is fighting furiously for both sides. The first is that Jesus is a man. He is never docetic. That is a technical term for a heresy. Uh, basically, docetism comes from the Greek word meaning to seem or to appear. And if you're docetic, uh, Jesus is basically, he's God, but he only pretends to be human, or he just appears to be human, but he isn't really. Well, 
that's uh, little more than just a deception, isn't it? I mean, that's God deceiving. That can't be right. And John won't have any of that. And the word became flesh and tabernacled. He was truly human. So he lives a normal life. He goes to family weddings. He had annoying brothers. He cared for his widowed mother. He loved his friends. He has physical ailments. He gets tired and is hungry. He is limited. He can't be in the same place, more than one place at the same time. So when Lazarus is dying, he can't be there at the same time. He's some miles away. He has negative emotions. He, he is troubled. Literally, the Greek, when it says Jesus was troubled, it says he was snorting with anxiety. He weeps. He fears. He fears death. He deliberates about escaping from it. He deliberates about deliverance from his death. And he dies. You can't get more human than any of that, can you? He's one of us. And this doesn't come as a surprise to us because we very often start with a Christology from below. But it's very important for John because he starts with a Christology from above. We believe in the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. And he's all these things. Long ago, there was a man who ruled in Persia, a wise and good king. He loved his people and he wanted to know how they lived and what their hardships were like. So often he would dress up as a beggar and went to the homes of the poor around his capital. No one knew who he was. No one even suspected for a minute that he was the king. And once he visited a very poor man in his cellar, he ate the coarse food that the poor man ate. He spoke cheerful, kind words to him, and then he left. Later, he visited him again and disclosed his true identity. And the king wondered if the man would ask for a gift or a favor. But he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others you have given your rich gifts. To me, you've given yourself. He's one of us. But he is also God. And you can see this portrayed. I've just got three ways, but there are many more ways this comes clear in John's Gospel. He has this extraordinary relationship with the Father. The great paradoxes are all there, but John keeps them both furious. He reveals the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, who we've seen in chapter 14. He depends on the, power for his, uh, on the Father for his power, his knowledge, his mission and message, and his life. He says again and again, I only speak what the Father's told me to speak. I'm doing what my father's told me to do. In fact, there's a very interesting uh, phrase that keeps coming up again and again and in John, that the father is the one who sends and the son is the one who is sent. It's never the other way around. Jesus is the sent one. He is intimate with the father. He says, he is with me. He prays to the father, chapter 17. And his titles are interesting. A, a son, to be a son, needs a father. A lamb needs someone to have sent him as a victim. He is sent from the Father in authority and obedience to judge, to lay down his life. All the time he was with God and was God, as we saw in the prologue. Then Jesus sends his spirit. He comes alongside his people as an encourager, a protector, a defender. He pleads our case to our God and Father. He's the one who defends us in times of trouble. But what's going to happen when he goes? 
Well, he says that he will send another like him, another counsellor or comforter. Because the original means so many things. The Greek word parakletos is very difficult to translate. Sometimes you find in old hymns, the paraclete. It's not some weird sort of tropical bird. Um, it's basically the, 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 the Greek word for the Holy Spirit as another counsellor in John 14 to 16. The Spirit is coming. That's why it's a good thing that Jesus goes. It seems mad that Jesus is going. They say, don't go. And he says, no, it's better for you that I go because I'm going to send you another of me, another like me, another counselor, the Spirit, who will live within you. But Jesus himself is Spirit-endowed. He has the Spirit on him who enables him to do his ministry. And Father and Son together send out the Spirit in chapter 16. And it's precisely by the Holy Spirit, that believers come to dwell with the Father and Son. We'll think more about that in the days to come. Finally, then, God is Trinity, three in one. It's a profound dynamic at work between the three. They're not static. That's the problem, actually, with all illustrations. They're static. They don't have each of the three persons sort of having an independent identity, but together. It doesn't, we don't have the language for it, do we? This is not tritheism. This is not three gods, but trinity, three in one. John Wesley said this. Tell me how it is in this room that there are three candles and one light, and I will explain to you the mode of divine existence. Again, illustration is flawed, but you can see what he's saying. And as I finish, think of John's most famous statement of God from his letter, 1 John 4. God is love. If God is not Trinity, that statement is impossible. It is impossible for God to be love without Trinity. Because you see, the whole of the cosmos was created by him. Now, if God is not Trinity and God is love, what is there for him to love? Well, you either say he just loves himself, in which case that is the opposite of love, that is selfishness. That is not love at all. In fact, that is the epitome of sin. It doesn't quite fit, does it? Or you say he needed to create the cosmos to give himself something to love. But again, that can't be quite right because that implies that God depends on us in some way. The Bible is quite clear. He is utterly self-sufficient. He has a cattle and a thousand hills. He doesn't need them. But a God who is Trinity has this dynamic relationship of love within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, each loving the other in dynamic other person-centeredness at the very heart of God, which is why he is self-sufficient, why he doesn't need us, and yet what a privilege it is that he sweeps us up into that dynamic of love. If God is not love, sorry, if God is not Trinity, then God is love makes no sense. You see, God is far, far greater than we could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many things we've covered today. It's been tough going. Please help us to depend on you and what we do know of you. Please help us to trust in you as you have revealed yourself. 
Help us to be people who love and worship and adore you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may his blessing be on each one of us from now and forevermore. Amen.